0: State of the Industry Podcast. And here we go. Welcome back. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is Adam Youngsma, and here we are set for part number two of my lengthy conversation with Chuck Wolf. Just as a brief background, Chuck Wolf is the director of Human Motion Associates in Orlando, Florida. He does conference presentations. He does seminars. He has written a book. He provides a lot of educational material in the way of articles, and he is just a, a great person, great personality, and a good friend and mentor of mine. So I really hope you enjoy part two of this. If you haven't seen part one, probably a good idea to go back. But if you don't mind it all kind of being jumbled around, then you can dive right into this one. So without any more of my incessant rambling, let's dive into part number two. What I want to get into now is just uh, diving a little bit more into what we do. So once we maybe perform our gait analysis, we do some of our assessments. Uh, let's just kind of walk through those big three movement rocks that you were talking about. So the ankle, knee, and hip. So if you saw during a gait analysis and you did some other assessments, finding that the ankle dorsiflexion is restricted, which often leads to more overpronation. You know, if we look at an exercise like a squat, because we don't lack dorsiflexion, the foot's gonna fall in to allow more artificial dorsiflexion. Uh, what would you do in that case to address it? What kind of contraindications would you have exercise-wise for those people?
1: There's a lot to consider in the question you just stated. First, if there's lack of ankle dorsiflexion, um, typically you're not going to see the foot evert as much. Yeah. You're not going to see the uh, rear foot evert as much. So if there's lack of ankle dorsiflexion, if we recall those four components, ankle dorsiflexion, tibial internal rotation, forefoot abduction, calcaneal aversion, if any one of those gets limited in motion, there's gonna be a limitation all the function. So if you have lack of ankle dorsiflexion, I guarantee you the foot's not gonna unlock very well. And the subtalar joint is not gonna move as efficiently. So first thing I need to do is figure out, is it coming from the ankle or is it coming from the foot? And in either case, we need to mobilize that. Now, when we do ankle dorsiflexion, and let's just limit to that for the moment, what the books have always told us, what the industry tells us is, let's just get the tibia to move over the foot. When we do that, often clients complain, I feel a jamming right at the instep. And the reason being is because we're not getting the tibial internal rotation. So when you get ankle dorsiflexion, you better develop a strategy to be able to get the tibia to internally rotate a bit. So it gets that clearance and it gets the calcaneus to evert a little bit more. So what I would do in that case is maybe have the client in a staggered stance and have them, or imagine that there's a rope around their hip and you're pulling that rope forward. So it drives their hips forward. As their hips go forward, that ankle is gonna dorsiflex. Now, if you are allowed to have, meaning if the client, uh, if the trainer is allowed to have the ability to help facilitate motion, that's by putting their hands on their tibia, and as they go into dorsiflexion, internally rotate that tibia, great. Uh, Because all you're gonna do is help facilitate two of those four uh, components of foot and ankle function. Mm -hmm. If they aren't allowed, if their facility says no, you cannot touch them in any way. First yeah. of all, you're helping to facilitate motion; you're not doing anything as far as manipulation or adjustment, you're just facilitating motion. But if they're not allowed to, then have that client just drive their hip forward, keeping that. And let's let's pick on the left the left hip and oh, I'm sorry, the left ankle as a moment. Okay. So that left foot is facing forward, with the right foot ahead so they're in a staggered stance. Make sure the calcaneus of the left side stays on the ground. Drive that hip forward or have them drive their hips forward which is going to create ankle dorsiflexion. At the same time what I would do is is take the hands and reach to the right. Because what that will do is take the shoulder girdle, the thoracic spine, the hips, and just in real space, rotate it to the right and it will cause the hip to of the left side to internally rotate and the femur and the tibia will internally rotate. Yeah. Now I do it that way because I need to get the, the calf group, the calf group consisting of the gastroc the posterior tibialis and the flexor digitorum, they're all eccentrically loaded. Yeah. Now when you reach to the right, and it's reached to the right maybe to a 10 or 15 degree, maybe even a 20 degree range off of, if straight ahead is zero, go to the right about 15 to 20 degrees, that's gonna cause the left side to internally rotate or, or rotate to the right, and the foot will evert. Then I would reverse it. I would have their left foot forward, drive the hips forward. As they drive forward, the knee is gonna flex now, but the ankle will dorsiflex as well. Yeah. Do that same reach, so their left leg staggered, left leg stance forward, reach to maybe waist to hip height, maybe knee height, but reach both arms to the right about 15 to 20 degrees mm-hmm. at waist, hip, or knee height. And it isn't just flexing at the hip, it's letting the knee flex, letting the hip flex, And you're gonna see with that reach, you're gonna cause that same reaction. The tibia will internally rotate and they'll start to enhance uh, ankle dorsiflexion. But you see, we just didn't isolate the ankle in itself. Now, there's times that, yeah, we'll do some soft tissue work. We'll unload the, the client, put them either face up, face down on a table with the foot hanging over the edge and do some soft tissue work. Shorten the the posterior calf group, resist the motion, and then have the foot go into, uh, uh, the ankle go into dorsiflexion. Yep. So now you're getting the tissue on the on the back side to lengthen a bit. Yeah, and that's going to those strategies have often enhanced uh, ankle dorsiflexion. Yep. But one thing to keep in mind is that you have a client who now has ankle or had ankle dorsiflexion. I will guarantee you, depending on how long they've had limited dorsiflexion, I will guarantee you that that hip on that same side is going to be tight into extension. Yeah. So we need to address that because you have a tight hip flexor and you can't extend through the hip, the ankle's not going to dorsiflex as much. Yeah. So that's going to tighten up. If you have a tight calf group and a tight ankle and you can't go in the dorsiflexor, you're not going to extend the hip as well. So one is affecting the other.
0: Yeah. It's funny, I get in a conversation a lot with, uh, with trainers because if you don't use it, you lose it is a common thing when you're looking at strength, <clears throat> hypertrophy, those types of things. Uh, but it wasn't always until more recently talked about in in a, in a, in the gyms about range of motion as well, right? So you get a, a lot of conversations about, well, um, you know, should I push my knees over my toes when I'm when I'm squatting? When I'm, you know, should I do you know what we call the you know, the asta grass squat, right? Or should I? Um, really go to end range at any joints and mine is well if you do it safely right you don't do it maximally loaded right you want to be able to use all the range of motion you have at all joints because if you don't use it you don't go into it you end up losing that range of motion and um, so that's the conversation often that i have with new trainers is you know when i'm teaching a bodyweight squat i don't want you to do a like let's squat by pushing our knees forward past our toes But if you have good dorsiflexion, guess what? If you watch any high level squatter, they all have their knee past their toe, but it's to a point where everything's organized. The load is spread across all the joints evenly or as close to evenly as you can get. And that's actually what leads to a decrease in injury risk versus me avoiding pushing my knee forward because that's what somebody heard once from a paper from Australia and blah, blah, blah. We don't get into that. But they hear that, and then now it's that's that's what happens all the time. You never push your knee forward, right? So then you have knee problems, you have back problems because you don't allow yourself to use dorsiflexion. So I love that that you know it's all interconnected and all kind of goes up. Um, and I like that the interventions you know that you mentioned are kind of hands off, allow the client's body to do the work, right? The client's body is performing. A lot of that mobilization right with the reach you know and it's staggered stance so it's kind of a gate it's the gate stance anyways right right right. and and so going back to what the assessment is
1: well when you talk about staggered stance yes it does go back to the assessment and where were they limited in the assessment but let's go back to you mentioned the squat yeah what do we do in life in a bilateral stance generally speaking
0: down, pick something up off the floor, maybe hinge.
1: Yeah, are we in a bilateral stance when we do that? Most of, time, most of the time, not most of the time, not. Yeah, I'm not saying don't do a bilateral, yeah, squat, bilateral stance squat. I'm not saying that at all. Yeah. What I am saying is let's expand it out and get wider, get narrower, get longer internal, external rotation, get staggered stance, sometimes single leg stance or or. or or one-and-a-half leg stance, because that's the majority of what we do. When I see so many, so many strength and conditioning coaches doing squats, heavy squats, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing to do. But what is going on at the foot and ankle is the hip going into an anterior tilt first as they descend into the squat, and then as they come up, they go into a relative posterior tilt.
0: Yeah.
1: Is the foot doing what it's supposed to do in those four components? Yeah. Those are the questions I look at because so many, especially and I see it in, in baseball and golf, so many of the strength and conditioning programs are in bilateral stance. And my question is, what do we do in baseball that's in a bilateral stance?
0: Stand on the mound before maybe. Doing anything. <laughs>
1: maybe. And maybe not.
0: Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Generally not. Yeah.
1: Uh, so why are we training them that way yeah. and why are we not looking at the quality of movement rather than the quantity of weight that we push
0: yeah.
1: um, and those are always fun discussions so I'm not saying not to do a bilateral squat I'm saying go ahead and do it if the, if the proper motion from the big movement rocks is good yeah. but then let's do things in an asymmetrical offset way yeah. because that's how the body reacts yeah. You know, in gait, in gait, you're on uh, one foot, one leg, sixty percent of the gait cycle. Yeah, we better train our clients to be able to control that.
0: Yeah,
1: in all three planes of motion. Yeah,
0: with a with a transfer of, you know, the you know center of gravity, center of mass translating over that base of support. Right? Exactly so, right,
1: and that's yeah. not straight. That's going to be somewhat curvilinear. Yeah, yeah.
0: So it's it's interesting when you break down. You know just very basic movement like something that we perform all the time and a lot of people don't do it right because they're missing something from one of those big movement rocks
1: walking like is simple something. right yeah and it's so complex yeah.
0: how can you do and it's the same thing with like and we won't get into this today but it's the same thing about breathing right like how can I be doing something wrong that I do 10,000 times a day if you're like Fitbit tracker for mm-hmm. gate right like mm-hmm. how can I be doing it wrong? I do it ten thousand times a day. Right, right. They say that ten thousand you know hours is you know <coughs> <it> makes <laughs> you an true. expert, right? But That's it, true. you know practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes it permanent. And if you're doing it wrong in ten thousand hours, then it's still wrong, right? It,
1: it, isn't it interesting? That's very true. You know, let's not look at the quali- the quantity. Let's look at the quality of what we're doing. Yeah. But it's interesting when you talk about breathing. Yeah. How many Clients or patients that have back pain, that have abnormal breathing patterns.
0: Yeah. Yeah, most of them. Most Not of all. them. Yeah.
1: There isn't. Uh, I, I I'm fortunate to work with. Definitely the leading neurosurgeon in in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Robert Masson, and I get a number of referrals from him. One hundred percent of the people that. I have been referred, have been referred to me from him, have abnormal breathing patterns. Yeah. 100% they have had lumbar spine issues. Yeah. Now, is it because of the pain that they might be in? Or is it because, which is, is quite possible, or is it because we've just adapted these shallow breathing patterns and don't recruit the abdominals and the intercostals and the obliques and the transverse abdominis and
0: yeah.
1: what have you? Um, there's other things that I see on a consistent basis for people who have back pain in their in their gait and their mechanics. Yeah. But you talk about a simple thing as breathing, and one of the interesting I don't want to call it a trend. One of the interesting uh, awarenesses that's come up over maybe the last three to five years in the fitness industry is starting to focus on breathing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So actually, one of the the sessions that I presented when I was over in China this past summer it was about breathing, it was about um, specifically aimed at trainers, not so much rehabilitation, but how do you assess for proper breathing patterns and then how do you get somebody to retrain their breathing patterns and then what should breathing look like when you start exercising, right? Is there that, that point where the body can't, because you know, I heard a lot when I was first training you hear a lot about the Valsalvo maneuver, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, you, you don't do that. Or, you know, yeah, you do do that. And, you know, if you talk to a, a power lifter, it's like, well, we have to. And so doing more research on breathing and finding out that there is that point, that zone of ineptitude where like the body can't breathe because that diaphragm and the, the intercostals and everything is required so much to stabilize that spine and rib cage that, you know, in that one RM, you can't, breathe that you need that breath to be held and everything to be maximally contracted for stability of the spine
1: during that motion but then you better you better let it out afterwards yeah
0: so it's like how do we Uh. you know how do you prevent that from becoming something that is your your common pattern right where everything gets stiff down here and now you're shallow breathing out of the top you know third of your your ribs but that's a That'll be concept. an
1: interesting discussion later. Yeah. But but you're right, and it's and I'm glad that that awareness, and that fine tuning, and that I mean that's that's higher level that's higher level, training, higher level education. Yeah, that's coming to the forefront.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that we do, because uh, we run a course, and we go through assessments, and one of the things that we do is we try to keep things really simple because it's a it's a it's a lower level course, you know, meant for you know trainers within the first year or two of their their training. Uh, but one of the things that we do is we, we go through, you know, what we call the, the foundational movement patterns, your squat, your hinge, right? Everything that the person's going to do in the gym and just our assessment is let's get you into the squat and at the hardest point of your squat that looks good, can you breathe in that pattern? Can you breathe at that point? Mm-hmm. And I actually got that from, um, Gray cook at uh, perform better in Long Beach uh, last year, two years ago. And, and he was basically saying like, if you can't breathe in a position, you don't own a position, right? So if you can't breathe at the bottom of a squat, then one, I'm definitely not loading you in that squat, but two, I'm going to figure out why are you not breathing there? Mm-hmm. And what can I do to fix that so we can start breathing? Sure. Because for most, it's not as easy as just, well, don't hold your breath. There's a reason why that diaphragm isn't working the way it's supposed to in that position, right? Those intercostals aren't working. So that's, a, that's an interesting-
1: What point. I found is that, uh you talk about the diaphragm not working, even though that's an involuntary yeah. uh, contraction. The diaphragm is connected to the arcuate arch, or the or the soas is connected to the arcuate arch of the diaphragm. Yeah. So I want to look and see what's going on at the psoas Yeah. Quite often they're very tight. Yeah. Which limits the ability to to get that full inhalation exhalation. Yeah.
0: Um, so just to stay on that topic for one second. So with, with soas tightness, which most clients, if you assess it, probably have some level, specifically if they sit for a long period of time, which most of our clients do, Yes. what, what do you do, once again, without equipment, without manu- a manual release of any sort, like what would you do to assist a client who has a, a tight psoas in opening that up to get a little bit more hip extension if maybe that's the issue?
1: From a movement standpoint, if the psoas is going to be tight and they're going to be limited in, uh, in uh, hip extension, they're going to be tight and in limited ankle dorsiflexion. Yeah. That's where I'm starting. I've got to stretch both of those together. Now, what's interesting about the psoas is if you look at it, it connects at all five lumbar, goes up to T12, but all five lumbar it comes down on a lateral oblique angle, attaches at the uh, lesser trochanter of the femur. But right above that, Right before the, um, uh, as it blends in with the iliacus, it kind of turns and rotates on itself as it attaches. Yeah. So it's got a transverse plane impact as well. Yeah. If somebody is stretching their hip flexor, let's get into a staggered stance again, and you can either have your lead foot on the floor or put it up on a box, and you externally rotate your trail leg, you're gonna see that you're not getting as much of a hip flexor stretch. So I wanna see that trail leg, that foot internally rotated just a bit. Yeah. Because now you're gonna get more tension at that attachment and as it, as it kind of rotates on itself. But in many cases, a lot of people that I put into the, to this position say they don't feel it too well. However, look at their overall alignment yeah. And they're flex at the hip, yeah. just a bit because they're giving into the tightness. Say so just sit, sit up or, or, or stand tall and drive your hip forward, and get your hips underneath your torso more. And all of a sudden, that turns on and they feel that stretch. Yeah. So, one way that I'll stretch is that way. Um, you can do an isolated stretch. Some people, may, if they can get down on a knee and then drive the hip forward, you're going to get more of an isolated stretch. I have no problem with that. But think, though, you're taking a, a link out of the chain because part of that chain is going into the lower uh, the, uh, the extremity below the knee. Yeah. So I need to get the foot and ankle and the calf involved. Yeah. Likewise, you can have them reach, so let's say you're stretching the right hip flexor, take the right arm, reach to maybe 10 or 11 o'clock you're gonna feel a little bit more transverse reaction and the psoas gonna get stretched even further. Yeah. You can put them on a the table face down and do some, uh, uh, I'm drawing a blank right like now.
0: Manual hip manual extension. Manual hip stuff, extension yeah.
1: and, and um, some passive reaction yeah. stretch. Uh, but again, that's putting in isolation. Then have them just take longer strides, you're going to see the people with tight hip flexors are going to have a shorter, shorter gait. Yeah, and I see it all the time uh, when when somebody is tight in the hip flexor, they just as I as I say, you walk in a pencil skirt, <laughs> walking somebody's <laughs> really tight, lengthen out your stride. Yeah, and they start to feel it, but keep your heel down a little longer. So I don't want to give them too many things to think about. Yeah, so I'm just stride, push through the glute. And lengthen out your stride. Yeah. What I was thinking about, forgive me, I, I, drew, I drew a blank earlier. At it was PNF. It yeah. Do a PNF stretch on the on the hip flexor. Yeah. Um, but those are some ways that you can mobilize it yourself. Now, if you do a stretch and you externally rotate that side, and they feel tightness in the front of the hip flexor, particularly if you put them in external rotation, hip extension, and abduction. Mm-hmm and they feel it really lights up and gets tight in the hip flexor region, it's quite possible they may have a tight hip capsule. Mm-hmm. So we'll stretch them that way too to get the hip capsule to stretch. Yeah. Now there's deeper ways to do hip capsule stretch in all three planes of motion, but I don't want to go yeah. down that in, into this discussion at the moment. Next time.
0: Next time. <laughs> um, you have to come down to Florida. Uh, hey, I'm, I'm here most years, so. Or in June, I'll come or, up and see you. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, when it gets warm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or maybe in August if you're presenting at Camper Pro again. I sure hope so. Yeah, um, yeah, that's great. So you mentioned something. Int- so when I do, when I work through the hip flexor, um, I do the same thing, right? Hip, uh, hip, ex- little bit of hip extension. So you're in a split stance, hip extension, and yeah, I find the same thing. People go into extension in the spine. So oftentimes when Trainers specifically are trying to correct one thing, they allow their client to actually compensate doing something else. Correct. Right? So, uh, you know, I always talk about my, my least favorite cue for any exercise in the gym, okay, not any, most exercise in the gym is chest up. And I hate it because when a client hears that, we, we know what we want out of the cue. But when a client hears that, they think chest to ceiling, which means spine extension. Correct. So specifically, if you're talking about something like, you know, uh, lunges, split squats, squats, deadlifts, whatever, and you're saying chest up, instantly that spine goes into extension. When really what you want is you want some probably posterior pelvic tilt, right? And you want to limit or you want to stay in a neutral spine position, right? That long spine position. Well, there I may have a little bit
1: of respectful disagreement with you. First, I have to see what position the pelvis is in. Yeah. And if they have... My question would be, why would we want to get them into posterior pelvic tilt? Mm-hmm. Because typically what the trainer thinks about in that case is, okay, I'm going to put them into posterior pelvic tilt. So that's going to be a conscious reaction.
0: Yeah.
1: If they have a tight hip flexor and they're in a posterior pelvic tilt, we need to to stretch that through getting hip extension.
0: Yeah.
1: Hip extension, your pelvis is gonna go into anterior pelvic tilt. So without telling my client too much, yeah. if I put there, let's let's assume I wanna stretch the right hip flexor, but the hip may be in a posterior pelvic tilt. Um, I need to get them into a staggered stance to get that right hip into an anterior pelvic tilt. Yeah. However, We've also had people who have anterior pelvic tilt, and they have a tight hip flexor. So now, how do I get them into a posterior pelvic tilt? I don't want to do the entire pelvis into a posterior pelvic tilt. I have to get that iliac, uh, di- uh, the ilium dissociation. Yeah. So I'm going to take their right foot, uh, their left foot, and maybe have them stand on a box, which yeah. will put their left hip into a post relative. Posterior pelvic tilt to their right. Yep. So both are now are helping to enhance that hip extension, yeah. if that makes sense. Yep. Or if we don't have a box, just get their left foot forward into a staggered stance again. Because in that case, the hip is going to go into a posterior pelvic tilt Yeah. in relation to the right. Yeah. So when I hear the chest up, yeah. I agree with you that we see it too much of an extension from the particularly of the lumbar spine. Yeah. What I tell people to do is, from their greater trochanter to the top of their head, I only use three cues, yeah. maybe four, but the first one is from the greater trochanter to the top of the head, get those two points as far away as possible from each other, when I say stand tall. Yeah. Now that's gonna create, depending on what position they're in, their pelvis is in, that's gonna create a bit of an anterior pelvic tilt, but at the same time you're gonna see the scapula retract as the spine gets long, And now they're in their neutral spine. Yeah. So it's all relative to them, but they feel abdominals engage. They feel whatever position that their hips have been, they get into a more neutral, relative neutral position from where they've been. Yeah. Particularly if they're in a posterior tilted position. Stand tall, you're going to see the hip go into a relatively anterior tilted position. Scapula retracts, abdominals would get recruited, and they, they become more stable. Yeah. So, even if they're standing or they're sitting or they're in a a staggered stance, even if they're laying down, if I tell them, just sit, stand, lay tall, those structures get into position. Yeah. And we don't have to talk about chest up, butt out in a squat or anything else. Yeah. Or if we're trying to get the chest up. I found that to be successful. It's not to say that what is being told isn't. Yeah but it's what the reaction is of the client and how it's being told and conveyed. Maybe we're getting that reaction from the wrong regions.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, You mentioned a little bit earlier about, because we did the ankle, you mentioned about the hip internal rotation and abduction, right? So oftentimes when you're limited in internal rotation, you're often limited in hip abduction as well. ADduction. Sorry, ADduction. Yes. Um, can you walk through that a little bit, and um, if you did notice that in your gait analysis, what you would do to address some of that?
1: To address the tight internal hip rotator? Yeah. Okay. Before I go on any further, before we move on to this, one other thing that I wanna throw in there about Hip flexor and the psoas, yeah. I better get the adductor to stretch with it as well yeah. because they're all fascially connected. Yeah. As far as the hip is concerned, excuse me, um, depending on what position it's in, what is the relationship of the femur with the ilium? Mm-hmm. So, again, if I've got an anterior tilted pelvis, um, or a posteriorly tilted pelvis, that could limit internal rotation. Because as the hip goes into internal rotation, there is going to be a bit of anterior pelvic tilt. If they're already there, they're gonna be limited in motion. So I have to figure out a way to get them into a position that will place them in the relatively posterior tilted position from where they were. If they're limited in internal rotation, a frontal plane motion, Hip adduction is going to be limited. I'll attack the frontal plane motion first. I need to get the hip adduction. If I get that, internal rotation becomes easier.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so, well, so sorry, just interrupt. so yes, sir. What's your why behind doing the, in the frontal plane before the, the transverse? Because now <laughs> I'm intrigued.
1: My why is, uh, as you internally rotate the hip, as you internally rotate the hip, you need to get hip adduction. You're gonna see that depending on how the foot is, you can have internal rotation with an everted foot, you can have it with an inverted foot. But if I'm looking from a top down, so think of it this way, right now I'm standing, and if I turn my torso to the right, I've got my right foot slightly forward, As I turn my torso to the right, you're gonna see that my femur wants to, through real motion, and I suppose we should define the difference between real motion and relative motion. Real motion is the bones are moving in space, in real space, in this case, turning to the right. But if my femur goes further and faster than my tibia, I've got, we'll talk about the knee for the moment, my femur goes further to the right than my tibia, I've got internal rotation of my knee. If my ilium moves further to the right than my femur, distal bone of the femur is more internally rotated than the ilium, I have internal rotation of my hip. But my foot is inverted. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm turning my shoulders, my torso to the right. I could even reach to the right. I've got internal rotation of my hip but now if I do this where I've got a slight staggered stance and I turn my, my pelvis towards, let's say left 20 degrees and I reach at maybe waist height with both hands, you're gonna see that my foot's gonna evert. My tibia and femur are gonna internally rotate because my foot's everted, my calcaneus is averted, and it enhances ankle dorsiflexion, I have foot abduction, Tibia and femur are internally rotated. They move further and faster than my ilium. I still have internal rotation of the hip. In either case, I'm eccentrically loading the glute. In either case, my hip has to go further to the right in this case or hip adduction to allow internal rotation. But if I don't have the ability to get hip adduction, if I'm just bound up, let it be if it's if it's in the glute complex or maybe the hip capsule or further down that my foot just isn't reacting to allow the the, the lower extremity to move within the socket mm-hmm. of the hip and I don't have the frontal plane motion, my transverse plane motion of the hip becomes limited. Yeah. So I've just learned, and I don't know how this, I vaguely remember as I think about it now, is that I had a client who we were trying to crank on the hip because I was always trying to go for the hip internal rotation. Yeah. But I saw that they didn't have the hip adduction. Mobilize the foot and ankle. I left the hip alone for a bit, but I just had them do frontal plane motion of the hip. Just I regressed them and said, let's just bang your hip against the wall. Imagine yeah. there's a flashlight in your, in your navel. Rotate that flashlight, again, a right hip in this case. Rotate the flashlight to about... I told them 10 o'clock, and just bang your hip against the wall. And they were you could see that they were getting further frontal plane motion. Yep. But secondarily, they're getting internal rotation. They're getting transverse plane motion. Once we gained motion in the hip and we did a little soft tissue work, got them on the table, did a little soft tissue work to just enhance motion in the lateral glute complex. Yep. And now we got them standing up their internal rotation came just like that.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, there's some, I'm not going to say everybody's going to be that way yep. because the hip capsule could be very tight. Yeah. And now it's a matter of doing some deep uh, um, um, mobilization, which is beyond the scope of what I want to get into yep. in this discussion. But if we can get the hip capsule to, to move, uh, I'm sorry, to lengthen, within limitation to free up the joint, yeah. you're gonna see that, that that's going to enhance internal rotation of the hip. One thing we also have to consider is that in the in- fitness industry we typically talk either flexion, extension, ABA deduction, internal external rotation. yeah, But we also have to consider the fourth component and that's the glide. Yeah. So going back to this movement where I had the client with the right foot forward, banging the hip against the wall, reaching and showing or flashing that flashlight by the flashlight in the navel I call the beacon of life because where the pelvis goes, the low back will follow. Yeah. I want that pelvis to, sh- to shine and rotate if it is in the transverse plane because if the pelvis rotates, the lumbar spine is going to follow it. But with that, as they were doing that and banging their hip against the wall, I was taking their femur and internally rotating and just gliding a little bit more into adduction because we don't consider the glide or or translation Mm. because it isn't just the rotation that ilium has to glide over the femoral head Uh, the knee when it flexes just doesn't bend you've got the tibia that glides posteriorly to the femur and that's how we enhance the let's call it the fourth degree or the fourth dimension of motion is that axial translation. Yeah We get that it's easier to get at least I found it be easier to get in the frontal plane Which will then enhance transverse plane motion of the hip.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've, I've tried describing the difference between osteo and arthrokinematics to new personal trainers and Osteokinematics are hard enough for them to understand, and that's just you know for the listeners. That's the regular flexion, extension, internal, external rotation, abduction, adduction, and all the other ones that they have at individual joints. And the arthrokinematics are the things that are going on in the joint to allow for the outward expression of that movement, and it differs depending on whether it's you know the the ball rolling on you know like the which gliding surface is moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very like very difficult for them to understand, specifically if you don't have a model to show it off of. Sure, very right? tough, very um, tough. But yeah, so there's that. That's it's really interesting that you that you brought that up because we talk about that a lot when we do mobilizations for joints. We talk a lot about understanding and remembering the arthrokinematics and the specific movements that are restricted.
1: Well, uh, what the trainers and the listeners should keep in mind is that a joint is made up of bones, right? Yeah. Those bones, we don't want them touching. We don't want them being compressed and jammed too much. Yeah. They should just be kind of hanging. I mean, think of the bones that are just in this, in this bag. And the, the, where the bones meet up together and you've got tissue surrounding it, that tissue is an extension of the bag. So the bones should be, when I say freely moving, we don't want them too freely moving. <laughs> But you want them to be somewhat dependently independent of each other yeah because if they are too compressed, you're going to develop some arthritic change if they're if they're too free, you're going to see some subluxation and instability but you just said they they move and glide on each other however there's there's like five six different ways that a joint can move maybe yeah. it actually depends if you how you look at it, it could be up to nine different ways that a joint can move. And in this case, we could have the ilium go further out than the femur. That's from a top-down approach. Or we can move the femur further medially. That's a bottom-up approach. Or how are we going to change body angles to create that relationship? It's just the the relationship, so as I talked about earlier, moving in real space, in relation to relative motion, what is one segment doing in relation to the other segment? That's how the body moves is in relative positions, not in real space, yeah. because we could take a hip and you could see in real space it externally rotates, or a shoulder that would, in real space, externally rotate where the torso and the, and the humerus and the scapula all go at the same pace and it looks like it's external rotation and there's really there's no movement at all. Yeah, That's in real movement. But if we look at relative movement and you see that the humerus externally rotates further and faster than the glenoid in the scapula or in relation to the, to the ribs, yeah. there's relative movement and that's how the body
0: reacts. Yeah, yeah. Very well put. Uh, so I wanna go to the, the last of your big movement rocks, the thoracic spine. Okay. So same thing. If you had an individual, let's say, you've worked on ankle and hip already, now we're addressing some stuff that's going on in the thoracic spine. could be unilateral, bilateral, rotational deficiencies. Um, what would you do to address something like that?
1: There's so many things that, I mean, having so many variables and so many uh, conditions that could be limiting them. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just talk about general principles, if that's okay. yeah. yeah. Uh, when we rotate, as an example, because the, the two most mobile regions of the body are the hips and the thoracic spine. So when you rotate the thoracic spine, think of it for a moment. Think of, let's say, T6 on seven or T5 on six, and you rotate from the shoulders. Let's say you're going to rotate to the left. Think segmentally. Think like a like a like a um, uh, spiral staircase. Yeah. Each step rotates or is turned a little bit more. You turn your shoulders to the left, each segment is going to rotate further to the left. And what's interesting in the spine, where we talked about movements away from the spine, is defined as the distal bone in relation to the proximal bone. In the spine, it's the opposite. It's the proximal segment in relation to the distal segment. Mm -hmm. So you get, let's say, T5 that rotates further to the left on T6, you have left thoracic rotation. But you could then keep your shoulders straight and turn your hips, which will then filter up into the thoracic spine to the right. And even though T12 through six move to the right, T5, 4, 3 are in relative position to the left, you still have left thoracic rotation. Yeah. The thing I want you to also think about, though, is you have the body of the vertebra, and then you've got the transverse process, and then you've got the spinous process that goes out facing posteriorly. As, let's say, five rotates on six, you see that the left transverse process and the left facet of T5, as it rotates, where is it going, though? Back. What plane of motion, then, is actually taking place with the rotation?
0: Some sagittal plane.
1: Sagittal plane. Yeah. So we think of rotation in respect that it's one plane of motion, Mm -hmm. but it's actually two, and some schools of thought think it's three planes of motion that's happening at one time. Because when you think about it, when you rotate a little bit to the left, you get not only transverse, you're getting... You're getting a sagittal, as you just defined. Yeah. But in order, when we rotate, there's a little bit of lateral flexion as well. So now we've got
0: some frontal plane. Frontal
1: plane. Yeah. So we better load those tissues and get those structures moving in all three planes of motion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In the sagittal plane, depending on, again, if it's up, down, from the top down or the bottom up, we might need to mobilize... Segmentally driving forward or driving back, but it's still going to be that relationship of one segment upon another. Yeah, and that's where holding on to something and moving your bot, your your lower, tor- your your lower uh, uh, parts of the body forward and back, or keeping those mobile and rotating a bit from the top down. Yeah, where I have a bit of caution. The thing I don't like to do personally is have somebody. in a chair or seated on the floor and do rotation Mm -hmm. because what i found is that that rotation is going to go through the thoracic spine i'm okay with that but when the rotation starts filtering into the lumbar spine and it's on a fixed pelvis there's too much rotate there's too much transverse plane motion and rotation going through the lumbar spine i got a big problem with that yeah So when we extrapolate something similar to that, instead of doing Russian twists seated on the floor, do it standing and let the pelvis go. Now you're going to get the purist and you're going to get the traditional strength coach that will say, well, we need to get the obliques and thoracic spine to become more mobile. Look at the relative relationship. Because when you're seated and you rotate your shoulders to the left, eventually you're going to hit something that's more immobile, that's either the lumbar spine or the pelvis. Yeah. But look at the motion of the thoracic spine to, let's say, the lumbar and the pelvis. But can't you standing up, rotate the pelvis? That's going to be limited by how much motion there is in the hip. And then the, thor- the thoracic spine goes further and you still have greater motion from the top than you do the bottom. Yeah. Relative motion is that you are still getting those tissues to become mobilized in all three planes. Yeah. But if I can have the hip be involved a little bit, where the pelvis goes, the low back will follow. They'll still get the thoracic mobility, but it's not filtering down and getting excessive rotation through the lumbar spine. Mm-hmm. So that's how I mobilize in more standing positions. If I have somebody who can't stand and do do that, I may put them on a stability ball, as an example. At least the pelvis still has a freedom, of, some freedom of motion. If they can't do that then I'll put them on a fixed surface, such as a chair or a bench, but I may put them on an Eric's mat, mm-hmm. as an example, or something that's, or even take towels or a pillow and put them on there. It allows a little bit of So light. there's a little bit of motion in the pelvis. Yeah. I don't want that motion going through the lumbar spine on a fixed
0: pelvis. Yeah, yeah. yeah I completely agree. Um, and it's interesting looking back at all of the exercises that we've went through for the ankle, the hip, and just talking about the thoracic spine and all of the exercise for the ankle and the exercise for the hip involves some sort of thoracic spine rotation. So going back to and tying it all together, the ways to address a lot of the issues is by interconnecting it all and having it work all as one, like we want it to actually work in real life, right? So we're just no training them perfectly or properly for life.
1: Yeah. What happens when you have a client that is limited in thoracic mobility, where does a lot of that rotation start to come from then?
0: Are we talking lower body movements or upper body movements? Yes. So um, oftentimes lumbar spine, if we're talking about Exactly.
1: Yeah. Okay. Now you've got somebody that's limited in the in, in the pelvic motion.
0: Yeah.
1: But we still have to work through some rotation. If their pelvis is limited in motion, where's that rotation going to come from? Spine. Lumbar spine yeah. so isn't it interesting that nearly 100 percent of the clients and the patients that I've worked with who have back issues are limited in motion in the thoracic and/ or the lumbar, uh, 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 the hips yeah and in most cases both. Those are still telling me what's yeah I want to go downstairs now and see what's going on with the foot and ankle yeah. And isn't it interesting that nearly 100% of the people with back issues have some type of foot and ankle dysfunction? Yeah. The lumbar spine is the the region by which there's a transformation uh, and a transmission of forces from the bottom up as well as the top down. We better have that mobility up top and below so the lumbar spine doesn't have to go through that excessive loading, particularly in the transverse plane. Cumulatively, it only likes 13 to 15 degrees of motion. Yeah. When we go beyond that, something's gonna start breaking down.
0: Yeah.
1: I see it all the time. And I work with people who have, have disc herniations, they, have, they just have some facet syndrome, they have fusions, they may have had surgeries. All these things still fall into place. So when we look at people who have had back issues in the courses that I've taught at CampFit Pro at IDEA, you know, perform better uh, the, on, on spine issues, all of a sudden, if we think of the big movement rocks and the principles, that back problem isn't as complex as we make it to be. Yeah. Because in the fitness industry, for years, again, since I started, the back was always, oh, we can't work with this patient, or we have to be extremely cautious yeah. because they have back issues. I'm not saying don't be cautious. Yes, we, we, I don't care who it is, what the injury is, we're always cautious. But if we understand the mechanisms of how the lumbar spine has been affected by what goes on above and below, it becomes a whole lot easier to program.
0: Yeah, That's,
1: yeah. Where, we to, that's it, where we need to follow. It.
0: Yeah. And it gives you something to do other than, you know, your, your static core exercises, right? You know, the common things that you're prescribed if you go to, you know, the classic physio or something like that, right? Like, oh, your back hurts? Well, let's do this. this. Is not to say there's anything wrong with that, but expanding out of that and looking for the the reasons.
1: And that's the thing, yeah. expanding out of it. Yeah. Yes, let's do the let's, stability. Let's find where you're most stable and secure first and get you stronger there. And the programs that I've developed and that I do with the people here at the clinic is, Okay, we'll do sagittal plane, McKenzie extension, Williams flexion to start with.
0: Yeah.
1: Before that though, we're starting with breathing patterns.
0: Yeah.
1: Then we'll load and use extremity reaches because that uh, uh, contraindic- uh, contralateral motion is how we should be moving. Yeah. And the lumbar spine likes to have that. Yeah. But then expand out of there, now we start looking at, okay, well you're limited in the foot and ankle. And your foot and ankle better be mobile so it doesn't affect your your hips so much. And the hips can work better to allow the lumbar spine to work better, to allow the thoracic spine to work better. Your hips are limited in motion because of the foot and ankle. That affected the thoracic spine. Eventually we need to mobilize those tissues. So my question, we've always talked about for back care of having a strong core. What is the core? Yeah. And I ask that question in many seminars that I've done, and people will say, "Well, it's the abdominals that wrap around to the, to the lumbar fascia." I say, yeah. Yeah. And people say, "Well, it involves the hips." I said, "Yeah," because if you think about it, the glutes feed into the lumbar fascia. The internal oblique and transverse abdominis feed into the lumbar fascia. You've got the external oblique that's connected to the internal oblique, and they all connect to the rectus abdominis, which then Facially or indirectly connected to the adductors, which are connected to the psoas, which are fascially, the adductors connected to the hamstrings, hamstrings are connected to the calf group, which is connected to the foot. Now we go up, abdominals are connected to the obliques and to the serratus, and the obliques connect, the external obliques connect to the serratus, which then wrap around and connect to the rhomboids, and we, all of a sudden our shoulders and our lats are involved. Tell me what's not connected here. Yeah. So my question then goes back, what is the core? Yeah. And you brought up earlier in our conversation of when I've had people walk in a circle in the room and you've, you've, you've got a great toe, you've, you've got turf toe, yep. you've got immobility in your great toe. How does that affect your core? Yeah, they say, I, I don't feel the abdominals working quite as much, which they're not.
0: Yeah.
1: So the foot, the arm, the cervical flexor, the cervical spine, the cervical musculature your head, your hips, your legs, your feet, your toes, all feed into the core. Yeah. I have a slide that, it's a transitional slide, but it shows an orange. And we peel off the orange and we see the white, that we sometimes call the pith. Well, that's that's part of the fascia. Yeah. And that connects, and you hold the, each slice of orange is held together by fascia. Yeah. And each cell is held together by fascia. What's not connected in that, you take an apple the same way, the body's no different. So in my opinion, the core starts from the floor. Yep. You have to have all that working to protect the low back. I
0: love it. We'll discuss that at a later date. Love to. Um, So there was one thing that I wanted to say before we we just, uh, we finished off, and, and that's going back to what you talked about with the thoracic spine, the ankle, the knee, uh, sorry, the, the hip and the knee or the ankle and, and what you're talking about, the, the motion that you were doing, I'm like, oh, my golf game's going to be fantastic. <laughs> it's going to greatly, improve because it like I'll put a video um, with the, the blog post to this, um, but it looks like the end of my swing. So I'm like, oh, perfect. I got to work on that to get that hip moving a little bit better.
1: So you, so you probably don't internally rotate and you cut I, short your swing, I right? I have
0: a lack of internal rotation. For sure. Work
1: on your frontal plane.
0: I'm that now going to have to do that. And now Absolutely. you got to tell me how it works. And I if, will.
1: You know, maybe we should go play golf tomorrow and try
0: it. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe next time I'll, I'll be down in Florida, or maybe I'll take you out and, when you're in Toronto. I'd love to. Um, so where can our listeners um, find you, find more information, or connect with you? Uh, my website
1: is humanmotionassociates.com. Okay. Uh, if that's too long to write, you could do hmafit.com. Uh, Facebook is human motion associates dash Chuck Wolf being an old guy. I'm slow in the social media stuff, but I'm just starting out with Instagram stuff now. So awesome. we'll get that out there. Uh, it's it's going to be, you know, some movements and, and, but um, my intention on Instagram is to provide some education as well. Yeah. The thing about social media is it can be very powerful, Yeah. but also there's a lot of junk that's out there and I, Want yeah. to have a rationale of why on everything that we do. So, yeah. uh, my Instagram is uh, Human Motion Associates. It's also Chuck Wolf Seven Fifty. Okay, I think those are connected together. I hope they are because I'm,
0: I'm starting out. <laughs> You're only that. posting on one, and hopefully it goes to <laughs> there. Yeah, but
1: uh, those are the best ways to get a hold of me.
0: Awesome. Um, and for those of you listening, uh, he's also written a whole bunch of different articles. Um, so if you just Google Chuck Wolf. Um, you'll find a whole bunch of other articles that he's, he's written all over that, that encompass these, a lot of the topics that we've went over today.
1: A lot on PT on the net uh, years back. I haven't done that in a while, but PT yeah. on the net, a lot with idea. Uh, again, my I don't mean to sound solicitous here, but my book of insights of functional training, principles, concepts, and applications. Yeah. Uh, everything that we've talked about today is, is in there, plus a whole lot more.
0: Awesome. And if you have a chance to see him at any conference, definitely do it. You'll see the circle. It's fantastic. <laughs> and um, you'll you'll learn an absolute, uh, like a ton of information that's very applicable to your clients. So Chuck, I, I just got to thank you for coming on today. It's been a pleasure.
1: Adam, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's great to see you again. Yeah. And, and this was fun to do. I greatly
0: appreciate it. All right. We'll chat soon. state of the industry podcast i'll be back